0: Carlson,
1: Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt ingen annan Carlson som är så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores. Also. Yeah. everybody! To another episode of the Kimmy Girls of Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the longest-running fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who have never before submitted a rejected contract. It's true. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky. With me, as always, though, actually, for the first time in a while, it's my co-host, my BFF, the fantasy hockey robot himself, Brian Com.
0: Hello, Elon. Hello, everyone. Yeah, so much has happened. It feels like a lifetime ago since we were talking about, like, we talked about the Oilers acquiring Duncan Keith And it feels like an entire other offseason has happened between that moment and this one in which we're currently speaking. So there's a lot to pick through and discover for the fantasy implications of next season. And I am here for it, literally.
1: Yeah, well, uh, thankfully. Otherwise, this would be very difficult. So yeah, here's the plan, everybody. Like Brian said, a lot of stuff has happened over the past few weeks, uh including an expansion draft, free agency, a whole bunch of trades, an NHL entry draft. Uh So what we're going to do is we've decided to split the league into their four divisions. And we're going to just do one show per division going through each team, looking at all the moves they've made and trying to tease apart the fantasy impacts. And this episode is going to be the Pacific Division. So we're going to cover all of the teams, including the Seattle Kraken that are going to be vying to make the playoffs, and I think the weakest division in the league. I guess we'll discuss that as we go, and obviously a lot of exciting transactions happened here for some of the Canadian teams, but uh, okay, so that's the plan, uh, and that also means that we're going to be dropping a lot of episodes in your feed over the next little while, so definitely make sure you're subscribed to Keepin' Carlson, because we might... Uh, give you the Metropolitan Division in like a day after you listen to this one. So yeah, just you stick with us. We're going to get you through, teach you all the things you need to know, or at least give you our opinions on everything you need to know about what's going to happen in fantasy and all the implications of everything. So okay. Uh, with that, Brian, I guess let's first mention that we're presented by DauberHockey.com, the number one fantasy hockey website in the whole world. They're working overtime. I don't know. I hope that Dauber's paying his people good money because they've written article after article, you know, breaking down the fantasy impact of every single transaction. And so it's always a good read. Really smart people. So check it all out over at com, but with that i say uh, let's get going we're in the pacific division why not start with their newest team the seattle kraken i feel like we can do like a whole show just deep diving this team right they picked a whole team from scratch so there's potentially a lot of fantasy back here so let's like set a timer it's 8 10 right now let's say we have 10 minutes to discuss the kraken i'm thinking just for fun let's just quickly like try to project their top nine kind of like pick out like who's going to be the most valuable in fantasy like just a couple like quick hits here so how about i'll give you my take of who i like see as like the top nine on seattle you can let me know if you kind of agree or disagree we'll go from there but obviously they made their picks in the expansion draft they also signed a few free agents Here's, here's a guess, okay? Just to throw some names at you. I'm thinking, how about line one? You got Yanni Gourd centering it with Jaden Schwartz, who they signed out of UFA, and Jordan Eberly. Not a bad top line. Gourd, Schwartz, Eberly. How about uh, Jared McCann centering the second line with Callie Yarncrock, a favorite of keeping Carlson. We keep on mentioning him every season. Maybe this will be the year he really breaks out. Uh, McCann, Yarncrock, I don't know, Mason Appleton. There you go, second line. Appleton potentially a breakout candidate next year. Maybe the new Riley Smith. Maybe I don't know the Yarncroc or uh, McCann being the new uh, William Carlson. Okay, and then how about the third line? They signed Alex Wemberg. I don't really get this signing. I'm going to be honest with you, Brian. They spent a lot of money on Alex Wemberg, who I thought was washed up like two years ago. But uh, Wenberg say with Tanev and Eunice Donskoy. Okay, and let's say I'll throw the top power play. How about Jared McCann, Schwartz, Eberly, Donskoy? He someone's gone the power play in Colorado and Mark Giordano giordano's there as i think the top defenseman he only has one year left on his contract uh so those are some names what do you think about that top nine this sounds like a pretty decent team i think that's better than a couple of the other teams we're going to talk about in this episode
0: For sure. They sound like a a decent top nine. I mean, a lot of it is going to depend on whether some of these guys like McCann and Yarncroc and Appleton and even Donskoy can shine with a new opportunity for an expansion team the same way that new Golden Knights did in opportunities that they never had with their previous teams or just hadn't had in a really long time. The one caveat about the whole top nine you mentioned, which sounded plausible, Elon, but Keep in mind that Yanni Gourd had shoulder surgery, right? So he's reportedly going to need four months rehab, which should take him through to the end of November when he might return. So I'm actually going to uh, turn to someone. I didn't come up with my own top nine uh, depth chart. I just went to Ryan Clark over at The Athletic, who I really trust. Uh, he knows way more than I do. And the lines that he's constructed for opening night have Wenberg – on that top line with Schwartz and Everly. And then McCann centering the second line with Appleton and Donskoy. And then Croak because he can play center, uh, centering uh, Brandon Tanov and Colin Blackwell on the third line. Because, again, Croak can play center. So I think it makes sense that they'll ask him to do that while Gord is out, which means that either he or Wenberg is going to end up on the top line for a bit. And apparently Ron Francis himself said that Alex Wenberg is slated to play top six minutes. This is something Ron Francis has explicitly said. And so I'm trying to think, okay, let's just say Alex Weinberg plays in the top six. What's his upside? I mean, a long time ago, back when he was first starting out with Columbus, I held a candle for him. I was like, yeah, he looks like he could be somebody who can provide decent fantasy value. Uh, He won't shoot a lot, but he will convert on a high percentage of his shots. And he had decent wingers at the time to play with. And since that moment, his... uh, Well, actually, he was still good for like another year. But after that, he has cratered pretty hard and been completely irrelevant, even when... Remember, we went to Florida and we're like, ah, we might be able to bring something new here. So here we are again in the same Alex Wenberg cycle thinking maybe he can do something, but I'm going to be super conservative still and say, you're going to say this isn't conservative enough, probably. I'm going to say that Alex Wenberg, if he succeeds on the top line, is comparable to someone like Chandler Stevenson, who is also a low event player, high percent shooting, just being like a steady hand to be your top line centerman of course Chandler Stevenson uh, has better wingers. Uh, Jane Schwartz and Jordan Aberly aren't chopped liver, but they aren't Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty. So I'm not saying Wenberg is going to be as good as Chandler Stevenson, but I am saying if you want to think about Wenberg for fantasy purposes for as long as Gord is out, maybe those are those are the lines you start with
1: yeah well don't forget Wenberg had pretty darn good line mates last year in Florida right he was centering Hubert Doe and Hornquist for the start of the year and Hubert and Hornquist were going crazy Wenberg ended up with a 42 point pace so he's not nothing in fantasy but we saw last year that even with a high shooting percentage he had a 20% shooting percentage and he was centering a really good line he himself didn't put up like such fantasy relevant minutes so maybe it's more like you can say well we don't have to worry that his line mates maybe take a hit from playing with Wenberg I'm not saying that maybe like a Jaden Schwartz will do just fine but I just don't know if Wenberg the guy uh, cleaning up the points. But who knows? Like, this is a new team. And, you know, it's hard to, like, do too much projecting for this team just because we saw what happened with Vegas. And I'm sure no one was projecting that William Carlson was going to have the season that he had. Uh, But, yeah, so, Brian, if you had to pick right now your first pick from Seattle, it's not – oh, let's actually go through a few more players and then we'll we'll answer that question. But I'm going to say you can't count a goalie because if you're picking a goalie, probably you're going to be going with Philip Grubauer, who uh, we just saw today before I started the show that his contract that he signed with Seattle was rejected by the league. But then apparently they fixed it now. So it's like not actually a big deal. But I thought they like messed something up with the cap hit on each year or something like that. But anyways, that was a big shocker, right? In free agency, like I assumed that Grubauer was going to go back to Colorado. I think I even remember reading just like notes that Grubauer wants to go there. Colorado wants to have him. I'm like, why why the heck not? But no, like Grubauer goes to Seattle, joins Chris Drieger, who was the first player that Seattle signed like from expansion. We heard about that right away that he was good, even though he was going to be a pending UFA, Seattle took him from Florida, signed him to 3.5 million. So they've got, like, uh, almost $10 million locked up for this goalie tandem. Uh, I would assume Grubauer is the starter. Maybe it's just, like, a a tandem situation, just two really good solid goalies uh, so actually maybe you could include Grubauer as someone in terms of like I was gonna say like he shouldn't count because he's the obvious first pick but maybe not if it's a tandem so what do you think about this goalie situation in Seattle like Grubauer had a 922 save percentage last year of course that was on this amazing Colorado avalanche so are you gonna be like drafting Grubauer or Drieger like high in your fantasy leagues for next year
0: Uh, It's really it's a really great question. And I think if you're asking how much I want to invest in either of the Seattle tandem goalies, despite how great they both were last season, I don't think I'm not jumping for them while there's still, of course, a workhorse starter on the board who's going to be at least average. No, that's not to say those guys grow on trees because they're hard to find. And when you do end up getting into the tandem goalies, I'd say the thing is that both Grubauer and Driedger have shown Grubauer over a longer period of time, but they they both appear to be good goalies, and we just don't know how good the team in front of them is going to be. Everybody had Vegas all wrong, right? So when my inclination is that Seattle might not be that great – I can't actually go by that. So you really are taking a bit of a shot here in the dark to figure out whether these tandem goalies are going to be worth it. Grubauer, like I said, has shown that he can do some really great things on his own, but he's also really benefited from being behind a Colorado team that plays some really great team defense that we're not yet sure if Seattle has the personnel to be able to do the same thing. And Driedger, we also have just seen a pretty small sample of him being good. It was good enough to convince Seattle to sign him on uh, to a contract that seemed like it was going to be uh, his number one starter contract until I guess they found out Grubauer was someone they could add to the plan too. I think I trust either of these guys to start about half the season and put up average or above average numbers, but I wouldn't want to put a lot of stock in either one playing a ton. If I could grab both as a cuff... And in, in a league where it's not going to hurt me too much to hold a handcuff, because we've talked a lot about the pros and cons of cuffing a team's goalies, uh, I'd happily do it because it, it's hard to imagine both of them really, really struggling. You have to think one of them, if not both of them, are going to have good seasons. So if you have both, you can at least dump the one who's having a tough season and seeding the number one spot to the other.
1: Yeah, I like that strategy a lot, especially if they're going to fall in drafts, which I'd imagine they will, because people aren't going to want to take this risk. You grab the cuff, hope that someone ends up taking the majority of starts. We'll see. And yeah, this defense like doesn't look bad, right? Like Adam Larson, uh, Vince Dunn, Mark Giordano, Jamie Oleksiak. Like these aren't the biggest like offensive names, but I think these are the Hayden Flurry. Like these are the types of players I think are known for like being good, somewhat good defensively. By the way, uh, Adam Larson. I'll throw it out there. He comes over from Edmonton. They signed him to uh, contract. Also, another player they drafted like Driggers from uh, the expansion draft, even though he was a UF. Uh, i think larson obviously is not going to be good for offense just like he wasn't for edmonton but he might see more minutes on seattle than on edmonton uh which could lead to even more hits and blocks than he already gives you like he was playing less than 20 minutes a game so i'm not saying that he's going to be like 25 minutes but even if he goes up to like 21 22 that's maybe an extra hit and an extra block or, or time to do something like that's so okay uh we're at our 10 minute time limits so how about let's just each pick who are you picking first from seattle i'll go first I think at this point, and hopefully we'll learn more as training camp starts and all that, give me, I guess, Jaden Schwartz? He's their, like, highest paid guy, uh, maybe aside from Giordano, so... I, I don't know. I think he'll be top line, top power play. So I, uh, who knows? You, I'm picking Schwartz. Are you Schwartz. using
0: his salary as a reason to pick him first? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that that was your analysis? I think I'll go to Jaden Schwartz first, because he's paid second most on the team.
1: Well, because, like, they chose to give him that salary of, all, you know, it was the UFA signing. So, obviously, right. they like this guy. They're not going to pay someone $5.5 million for, like, a however many years it is, like, four or five years, to not give him a important role on the team. So, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think I'm with you. I, I think he'd be the one with high upside. And of course, it's because Gord is injured, right? If, if Gord is healthy to start, I think I'd actually go him. I'm really interested. To see, he's never been given the chance to be a top line center. He's never been given that responsibility. We know he's got a great two-way game. We've seen flashes of offense. I'm not going out there and saying he's a slam dunk uh, producing machine, but I am still thinking that this this seems the most like a Vegas guy right? When when I say Vegas guy, like I said before, it's someone who just never had the chance with their past team to really show what they could do. And Gord strikes me Hmm. as fitting that mold and also getting power play time. So... When he's healthy, I think he would be my first pick, but Schwartz would be my second. Also making this a difficult choice, uh, goalies aside, on defense, Elon, we don't know who's going to quarterback the power play. Like Giordano seems like the de facto guy, but we've seen Vince Dunn push Alex Petrangelo before, so why couldn't Vince Dunn push a pretty old Mark Giordano. I I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Dunn play more games as the top power play quarterback than Giordano this year, but it's something that's impossible for me to even try and project.
1: Yeah, so we'll figure it out as the season goes. I'm sure they'll try a few different combinations. Yanni Gourd, if you're talking about, like, who's, like, the most Vegas person, I almost feel like Yanni Gourd is too, like, well-known for being a good player to count. Like, okay. I almost feel like the, the most Vegas people to me are Jared McCann. Appleton. No, I was gonna, well, him too. I was gonna go uh, McCann and Yarncroc, but and Mason Appleton. Like, it's, like, all three of them I could yeah. imagine being better than people are expecting. Uh, okay, but yeah, obviously the best strategies with your Gourd selection is if Yanni Gourd goes undrafted in your fantasy league and he's IR-eligible, stash him in your IR, have him ready to go as soon as he uh, is ready to play all right so that's seattle let's go to the edmonton i've tried my best to order these in terms of who i think had the most impact uh so when we get to anaheim at the end of this episode they'll be like they really didn't do anything which is fine i mean maybe they have other plans just using their youth but uh Edmonton did a lot so the first thing they did that I want to talk about is they signed Zach Hyman to a seven-year contract 5.5 million per year they were willing to give him eight years but the Leafs weren't gonna trade him for like that late pick or whatever to get that extra year but that's fine probably the Oilers are happy to have him for seven and slightly higher cap hit Uh, so Hyman's coming off this career year 33 points in 43 games it's a 63 point pace I have Hyman in like my dynasty league and I was so like frustrated when I saw. the news that the Leafs weren't going to be resigning it was like, oh no, he's going to like lose all of his fantasy value. He's probably going to sign for so much money, and he's no longer going to be playing with Matthews and Marner or with like Tavares and Nylander. Little did I know that he'd go to maybe the only place where his fantasy value probably at least stays the same, if not goes up. And he goes to Edmonton. He's probably going to play with Connor McDavid. Oh, I love it. Like I'm assuming the lines are going to be like I think just like the obvious thing to expect is like McDavid, Pooley, Arvey, and Hyman, and then you get R&H with Drysdale and Yamamoto just because that second line you know they've. It before, but either way, you know, give him McDavid, give him Dry I know, like, we could talk for a while about whether Edmonton made a smart move in signing Hyman, but as far as Hyman's fantasy value, I'd imagine he should be able to at least be similar to the 63 point base guy that he was last year, right?
0: Yeah, I don't see any change. Like you said, it's pretty great that he just moves from one team to another where there was this gaping hole next to a superstar for him to slot in. Not to say that he rides coattails. He does what he does really, really well and better than a lot of other players in the league can do. It takes a lot to be a really strong third wheel and that's what hyman is he's been a 60 point player for two years now he's actually had this really nice and tidy linear progression from being a 30 point guy to 40 to 50 then 60 point guy over the last two years of his career um by the way fun question you might know this already because of all the talk about hyman's contract uh, and how long it was but if i asked you how old zach hyman was like in your mind what Hmm. would you say
1: oh late 20s i guess
0: Okay. Yeah. 29 years old. I feel like he, especially before the the contract length started coming up, he gets this um, billing as an up and comer, but he was just a a late bloomer, or at least a late starter, someone who wasn't given an opportunity for a while. So speaking of his age, I have some injury concerns about Zach Hyman as he ages. He's 29 now, and he plays a style of game that can be pretty rough and tumble, and it shows in the number of games he's missed in each of the last three seasons. Last year, he missed 13. The year before, he missed 19. The year before that, he missed 11 games played. So that all concerns me, at least just a little, for uh, how durable he's going to be able to be uh, as this kind where on. I know we're just talking about this year in fantasy, but it still applies as his body's another year older and another year more banged up. But on the upside, uh, if he does play the full season or for whatever games Hyman does play, I'm starting to wonder if there's room for him on the top power play. I'm not sure if you've seen anything about this, but we know that Alex Chason was their net front guy in Edmonton for forever. He's currently unsigned, and I saw that he might circle back and the team might circle back, they still might get together. But I wonder if Zach Hyman can fill that top power play role. That is so juicy if he can, because, you know, you've got three forward spots locked down, but the fourth forward is going to be between Hyman, Poolyarvi, and maybe Yamamoto as another candidate. But I think likely it's between Hyman and Poolyarvi or Alex Chieson if he does resign. So what do you think about Hyman potentially hitting that top power play?
1: I mean, obviously one can dream if you have Hyman in your league. Like, he's <laughs> never been a top power play guy before. Uh, I when I talked to Low Tide about the Oilers a few shows ago, uh, I think he said that he thinks Puliyarvi is probably the most likely option to get there as like a net front guy. Uh, the thing is also a net front guy on the power play on Edmonton doesn't seem to get many points. Like it just seems like they have their system, and maybe the job of the Yamamoto or maybe the Hyman in this case is like you know go get the puck if there's a rebound, pass it back to Barry or whatever, and restart. But hey, either way, obviously it couldn't hurt.
0: Yeah, I actually I'm looking at Shieson's numbers the last three seasons and he's been about a 15 power play point player what maybe a little higher than that over the la- like in his pace is this net front power play specialist
1: okay well there so you go it, it
0: is a great place to produce
1: yeah i guess i just didn't even notice <laughs> that he was i guess those were like the only points he was getting so it yeah, wasn't he like did So or.
0: little of anything else you wouldn't yeah no other value.
1: Okay, so definitely something to watch. So yeah, Zach Hyman, I feel like he's gonna be highly rated going into drafts next year, and generally I'm kind of apprehensive, and we're gonna talk about some other players. well, basically, we're basically talk about all players who are who are switching situations in this episode. Uh, and normally I'm apprehensive of this, but I think like Hyman, like there's no way he's like a bottom sixer in Edmonton. Like they didn't go through all this and sign this contract to not give him a really long leash on either the top or second line. So I think he's a pretty sure thing to get great deployment, and I don't see why he Like I don't think I'm drafting him as a sixty point guy. So probably I won't even get him in my leagues, actually, to be honest, now that I talked this through. But if he's available as like a 55-point guy around that range, I'd grab him. No way.
0: You know he's not going to be. So you're just not going to end up with him unless you already have him in your league, as you said you did. So actually, I wonder, you just talked about all these guys changing scenery and how that's kind of a mark against them. Do you now might be a good time as we get into talking about all these guys who have changed teams for you to expand on that philosophy that I think has served you pretty well the last couple years.
1: Like obviously there's examples in both directions, but I think they, I think people assume in fantasy or coming up with projections that when a player goes to a new team, it's just going to go smoothly and you start just salivating over, oh, they're new line mates and this is how they'll fit in and it'll be great. But like, it's not real life. right? These are people like there's a new system you have to learn uh, and oftentimes a player goes to a new team and they don't get that spot that you expect them to get. Like even look like at Tori krug went to st louis and then he like wasn't quarterback in the top power play all season like we assumed it was like a guaranteed slam dunk so i don't know like but hyman does seem like a sure thing for the top six i wouldn't like bank on him on the power play but also it's possible that he'll struggle in you know he's been in toronto his whole career right maybe he's just really good at producing in that situation i don't really know but i'm just saying like in fantasy if i want a more sure thing pick i'm going to take someone who's been in the situation that they've been in before like so that i'll just be able to more accurately predict what they're going to be able to do
0: Yeah, you would think if somebody stays in the same place and most of the things stay the same around them, they'll likely do the same thing. And there's a whole lot of factors that get thrown up in the air when a player changes scenery, which is sometimes, like you said, really good. But we've seen enough examples in recent years, uh, like P.K. Subban is one that jumps out. But of course, there are more where we thought, oh, this is great, finally, he's free, and then falls flat and nothing happens. And you're left with a lot of uh, unseen uh projected fantasy values so just a, a note of caution for anybody drafting or trading for these players that we're mentioning and talking about their impact on these shows uh caveat emptor inspire yeah. beware right well, i don't know why i went latin there
1: uh, it was great uh i think the one thing okay here's some. here's a question for the listeners or if anyone in the chat can think of it tell me a player who had a career year then switched teams and and then did just as good the following year or better. Because like I'll tell you a guy who's uh recently switched teams, but now he's staying with Edmonton is Tyson Barry, and he's the exact opposite of what we were just talking about. He like went to Edmonton after kind of a down year in Toronto, and he was amazing, right? At least for fantasy at a 70 point pace. I think he led all defensemen in points because Kale McCarr missed some time. Uh he's re signed with Edmonton now, three years, four point five million per year. So, first of all, in that last episode that Brian that you referenced, where we were talking about Duncan Keith, and I was talking about, oh if he's on on the top power play but so forget that Duncan Keith obviously won't be on the top power play this is Tyson Barry's job so uh yeah just drop Keith out, off your draft list and Tyson Barry I'm assuming should do what he did last year again like I can't imagine that they re-signed Barry to this contract of 4.5 mil just to give Evan Bouchard like last year we thought maybe Bouchard can challenge Barry I think Bouchard like will likely make the team and who knows he's probably a good prospect but I think this is Tyson Barry's job at least for the next season or two
0: Sure, seems that way. And four and a half million in average value. Sure, that's a lot to pay someone. If they're just your power play specialist, but it's also not a lot to pay someone if they're going to be able to put up seventy points overall. And I like there is of course a, a minus side to that. You know, he might pick up seventy points, but how many extra points does he give up because of his defensive play? But it's still uh, there aren't a lot of seventy point defensemen around the league that you can sign for that much. And it sure seems like Tyson Berry is going to be able to hold steady with what he did last season, uh, if I remember right, Elon. You were cool on him in last year's drafts, right? Because of the changing situation. But like you said, he went uh he didn't go in that bad direction of, of changing teams. So you're good to draft him as like a top ten defenseman Producer now, right?
1: I think so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. last year I wasn't so confident that he would be on the top power play. Like I thought there was a chance he would, and there were like other defensemen who switched teams. That I was right to not be confident. Like I brought up Tory Krug, though he was for fine. Sure. But like uh here, like now we know Barry is like he's now it's the guy who's been in this situation, so we know that he can succeed here. Why would Edmonton change anything? The power play wasn't the problem. Uh, so let's look at some other changes that Edmonton made. uh They traded Ethan Bear for Warren fogel There's going to be a theme here, which is I'm very worried about Mike Smith. <laughs> like so, they signed Mike Smith again. They they haven't gotten another goalie, so I guess it's Smith and Koskinen as of now again, which probably means Mike Smith is going to be expected to play a lot. If, like you know, last year was any indication, but they've traded away Ethan Bear. They lost Adam Larson to Seattle. They signed Tyson Barry back, who's not known for his defensive play. They signed Cody Cece. They signed Cody Cece to a four-year, $3.25 million per year deal. I know that people say Cece was actually decent in Pittsburgh, but he used to be like the running joke that on hockey Twitter. It's like, Cody Cece, this guy's like really bad at defense. Now Edmonton's relying on him. Don't forget they have Chris Russell. He's not known for being that great at defense. They have Duncan Keith, who I thought they got him more for his offensive play. I guess we'll see what he's got left. But uh, Edmonton made a lot of moves. And I don't know if these moves are going to be good for them not letting in a lot of goals. So I'd expect this to be an offensive team again next year and hope to have like, these high-scoring games. And good luck to Mike Smith. But speaking of Smith, like you know, he had this great year last year, which earned him another two-year contract, even at his age. Uh, 923 save percentage in the 32 games. So at this point, like, how high are we drafting Mike Smith in fantasy? He's the starting goalie on this team that might have some defensive liabilities, but that might just mean for fantasy that he has a lot of opportunities for saves and probably still wins because they're going to score a lot of goals.
0: Well, with the addition of Warren Fogle, it feels like the Oilers have answered one need, which was some more forward depth so they could roll three lines without fear. And now on their third line, as it might stand, you've got um, Ryan McLeod, Warren Fogle and maybe Zach Cassian, although there's still rumblings that he could end up in the top six to start the season, which would just be wild. Uh, but Fogel is a, is a decent guy to have in your bottom six. They did a good job filling that out. But yeah, losing Adam Larson and replacing him, I I think they hope with Cody Ceci, who was a big shot blocker in his Ottawa days, but not in a good way, right? He was just getting pummeled and having to lay down in front of everything that came his way. And I'm not sure he's going to be able to provide the same... Well, I'm actually pretty sure he's not going to be able to provide the same quality of defensive play that Adam Larson could, even though the Oilers signed him to do that, I think. Hopefully, um, they'll realize... like Ceci has found this niche as a decent bottom pair guy. Uh, but he's faltered when ever given more responsibility than that, which seems like Edmonton is going to start the season doing, which yes, is plenty of reason to have concern for Mike Smith, who was very good last year, especially on the penalty kill. I don't expect that part to repeat. He was still good at even strength. He played just above average expectation while Edmonton was a mid-pack defensive team. This year, like you're saying, Elon, I, I don't think Edmonton is going to be as good defensively, and that could bear down on Mike Smith. Also, we did, I didn't even mention Duncan Keith's name and how he might be in the top four when he might not have any business being a top four defenseman this upcoming season. So Mike Smith is going to have his work cut out for him. It's going to be another year closer to being the same age as his jersey number, and there's no internal competition for him. So it feels like it's going to be all on his back unless he totally collapses. Uh, Koskinen was not bought out. Lots of talk about the others wanting to get rid of his contract but didn't end up doing it, or at least they haven't yet. Uh, Still a very risky fantasy play. Maybe good for wins, but a lot of high-scoring wins. So look out for your rate stats. And then also... Look out for your wins. If he doesn't do well, I'm not sure what the other options in the goalie market are for Edmonton and how quickly they can access them the rest of this offseason or into the actual regular season. But he's not somebody that I would say we're sure to see being a number one at the end of the year, even though right now there's no one in the organization to challenge him.
1: Yeah, they have uh, Alex Stalock. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, but yeah, Edmonton. Um... Yeah, that's the line. And and Adam in the chat also just said they have Staloc. Like, yeah, they, they have Stalock who I think is a below average NHL goalie who might be able to come in for a couple games at a time, or maybe go on a a nice miracle run here and there, but he's not a permanent option.
1: Okay, for sure. But yeah, so let's just get back to Smith though. Like, You said all the ways things could go badly, but this could also be like a really good value pick. Like, I don't think he's going to pick super high in fantasy drafts. Last year, anyone who grabbed him out of free agency when he started playing, like, got like a really like star level goalie in terms of his production. He was having great games all the time, lots of wins, great save percentage. Just to get a sense of where you're thinking of drafting this guy, I'm going to throw some names at you. You tell me who you'd rather have, Smith or that guy. Like, how about like a Tristan Jari over on Pittsburgh who struggled last year? Uh, Are they in the same tier, or is one like an obvious pick over the other
0: i think jerry is an obvious pick over smith. oh wow
1: i don't know like smith was so much better last year <laughs> I... okay so uh, how about uh, john gibson <laughs> he was terrible
0: yeah no that's not an obvious pick i would draft smith first but more likely i'd let someone else draft smith first and then take my flyer on gibson later
1: okay i see so you're thinking that smith is going to be maybe overrated based on his i production. think i might
0: get better value out of gibson later than smith in the draft
1: okay how about uh, carter hart who would you rather have?
0: Oh, come on. Carter Hart. I mean, you, would you? like To me, that's not a question. Well, I mean,
1: I think that Carter Hart, people who had <laughs> I, him in fantasy last he, year are sure. thinking there's a question.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know he was awful and Mike Smith was good. I just can't. I mean, you know this. I've had a really hard time getting behind Mike Smith, especially because his age. Like, It's now even more unlikely. Last season was a super unlikely season. For him to have a good year, he was in a steady period of decline, and out of nowhere, he blows he blows the roof off and has one of the best seasons he's had. Like that nine twenty three save percentage was his best since ever. <laughs> I'm just looking like that was his his career best. The years before that nine oh two and eight ninety eight. So I see him being much closer to those numbers than that repeating that nine twenty three. Especially now, like I said, it was super unlikely he would do it last year it's even less likely he'll be able to pull that off this year. And you know, like, I'm very aware of my general distaste for Mike Smith over the last few years. And I've been right more often than wrong. But last year, I was very wrong. But I'm willing to still hold the line I've had on Mike Smith for the last few years, which is that he's not, uh, he's not, he's not there. He's not somebody I want to be relying on on my fantasy roster. Okay, I think
1: I'm with you with I'll take Hart over Smith. but I think I would take Smith over uh, Tristan Jari at this point. But, okay, so that's Edmonton. I think we basically covered what's going on there. Let's go to the Vancouver Canucks now, who pulled off a huge trade, which was already, like, a long time ago, right, I guess, after we recorded our last episode together, breaking down the trades previous. But, uh, so they traded Louis Erickson, Jay Beagle, Antoine Roussel. Basically, they're just, like, dumping a bunch of contracts. Then they also sent a first round pick in this past draft ninth overall i guess i probably should have checked who that was right maybe you could check that quickly uh also a two twenty twenty two second, 2022 second and 2023 seventh so they sent all these assets well basically dropped contracts and sent uh, some picks to arizona for oliver Ekman larson and connor garland so obviously they're getting back a big contract in oliver Ekman larson and then connor garland he was a rfa and they signed him to a five year like around five million dollar per year contract so all told Like, forget about all the, it gets complicated, right? Because it's hard to evaluate these trades because it's all about dumping contracts and like short term versus long term. But in terms of like just next season for fantasy, basically they've gotten rid of like players that are meaningless, you know, like not relevant at all. And they've gotten back OEL and Connor Garland, who, you know, OEL is not the same player he used to be, but he's obviously like a very like rosterable player and Connor Garland is a potential star. So, you know, big increase in value for Vancouver at least next year. Uh, so Garland let's focus on him first 39 points in 49 games for a 65 point pace with Arizona people might not remember like at the start of the year he like he just went off was like almost point per game for the first few weeks of the season like everyone was losing their mind over Connor Garland he slowed down a little bit but like I said he ended up with a 65 point pace he also had a strong finish to the year let's assume uh, when we're trying to project the lines let's assume the lotto line sticks together so you know Miller, Patterson, and Besser they could stick Garland would likely slot in I think on the second line with Horvat and like maybe Hoaglander or Tanner Pearson let's say like either way I think it's a good spot for Connor Garland he gets to play with Bo Horvat do you think as a top sixer in Vancouver can Garland repeat his numbers from last year on the Canucks
0: I do. I really feel strongly about Connor Garland being a good player. And I know it took me a little longer than others to warm up to him. But I'm all aboard the Connor Garland train now looking at his offensive stats over the last two seasons, not just last season, but last two seasons. He's a top 40 forward in goals per 60 at five on five uh, shot attempts at five on five, he ranks 35th in the entire NHL for shots per 60 at five on five over the last two years. So Garland is somebody who's made a name for himself, taking a lot of shots and converting on a decent amount of them that I'm pretty excited to see what he can do in a more... I hope offensive minded system in Vancouver. This is also great news for Bo Horvat, by the way, cuz Garland is an upgrade on Neil on what Niels Hoglander was last year and is also a better option than Tanner Pearson to create with. Though that could be a bit of a double-edged sword for Bo Horvat if Connor Garland challenges for time on the top power play, but my guess would be that Horvat would hold on the top unit since he did see a lot of success there and that maybe Garland finds room on the second unit. So that would be something to consider for Connor Garland. And that, yeah, that five-on-five production is going to be really strong, but he might be missing that top power play role that really makes him one of the top uh, wings to get in fantasy. But overall, he's a top 40-50 forward in the NHL, and I am excited to see what he can do outside of Arizona because it really seemed by the end of last season, I don't know what happened. And, like, this is side drama, but there was, uh, seemed like this total disconnect between his apparent desire to stay or negotiate with Arizona and Arizona was just dead silent with him. Did not even really talk to him about re-signing. So Vancouver is a team that wanted Car- Connor Garland. They're going to put him in a space to succeed. And I am definitely interested. He's, he's for sure draftable. And, uh, I, I don't know where else, like how else I would rank him, Elon, if I'm trying to think of his value. As a, a guy who could put up really decent production, but maybe not get on a consistent top power play spot, that would be the number one reason to like let him slide down your draft list.
1: Yeah, I don't think I'd be drafting him as a sixty-five point guy. Like like you said, that was based on he did have ten power play points last year. So those out, out of his thirty-nine points, twenty-five uh, percent of them came on the power play. And who knows if he gets that role? I think this is the situation like I was talking about before, where I'm going to be a little bit cautious about drafting a player and expecting too too much in a new situation. We'll have to see. You know, like because hmm. Garland was often like benched or like demoted in Arizona. And I'm not saying that's a guarantee, but who knows? Maybe Travis Green doesn't love what he sees from Connor Garland. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, obviously, but yeah. it's, it's enough for me in fantasy to just like if he's around. You know, fifty point, you know, fifty five point guys. Potentially, I want to take a swing late in my draft if it's a more shallow league. Definitely, like I'd love to take a shot, and who knows? I can yeah. end up really regretting all season, missing out on this guy. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing bad about him. I just, I would just be a little bit cautious.
0: Yeah, there's just two different kinds of scenery change, right? And we're when a player's doing really well and the best they can do, uh, we're worried about what happens when they go to a new team. But if a player is not in A place with their like you mentioned he didn't seem to be coach's favorite he didn't seem to be GM's favorite so he's with a team that's going to show him some love now so I'm hoping that's a positive change of scenery like it's not just neutral okay I'm going to wear a different jersey it's like I'm in a new environment where people want me and, and are giving me all the support I need but you're right maybe I'm just falling into that new scenery trap that we've already warned people about
1: yeah, well, I don't know. Like, I mean, his most common linemates last season were like Nick Schmaltz and Clayton Keller. So it wasn't like terrible players. Like, Bo Horvat's good. Hoagland, I think it's like similar linemates, actually. And if he doesn't get on the top power play, I don't know if his situation is like that much better. He was averaging almost 18 minutes of ice time. I don't know if that changes. So I feel like that 65 point pace last season would be like what I would assume is his ceiling for next year. But, uh, I, and it could go down a little bit. But yeah, definitely like great for the Canucks and definitely someone we should have on your radar when you're going to your drafts. There's no doubt about that. I'll be curious to see what the projection. Are for him when they start coming out like from Dauber and Damusizion and all of those. Uh so okay, then we have Oliver Ekman Larson. Uh kind of has become a bit of a non entity in fantasy, right? Like he had 24 points in 46 games last season for a 43-point pace. Not nothing, not amazing. He was playing second fiddle to Jacob Chicron. Uh now he gets to play second fiddle to Quinn Hughes. So I'd assume he'll probably be the same. Like I think he's the second best offensive defenseman on the team now, especially with Nate Schmidt out of the picture. Not that Schmidt was so amazing last year, so he probably gets second power play. I think a good, like, 40-ish point pace projection seems fair for OEL.
0: Okay, sure. I uh, Yeah, I, I think I would take the under before the over on that. But I, I think that's exactly right. He's a pretty boring guy to project, Ekman Larson, because he's basically been right in that 40-point range... Uh, almost his whole career, sometimes training before 45. He had that one huge 60-point year that I always say, we told you, we told you that wasn't going to happen again. So that's that's one feather in our cap. But that's why I'm not expecting big things from him. Like He's not going to be on the top power play. Even if he was, I still wouldn't even get that excited about him because it's not a role he's really been able to add a whole lot of 5-on-5 scoring to. Like Even years where he's had 15 to 20 points because he's been quarterbacking the top power play, he's still only ends up in the 40 to 45 point range. So he's not someone to get excited about. I think he spent a lot of the past few seasons in your fantasy free agency, and I think that's about where he deserves to be. He's a good depth Defense ad. If I'm looking at a fourth or fifth or sixth defenseman, I'll look at OEL. Otherwise, no thanks.
1: Yeah, I mean, I expect him to have more points than like Tyler Myers or whoever I would have expected to be the second highest scoring defenseman on the team. Uh, so then I guess the other big change that Vancouver made is they bought out Braden Holpe. So obviously that d- signing didn't work out, uh, but no big deal. They bought him out. They brought him Yaroslav Halak on a one year deal for 1.5 mil per year for that one year, I guess. Halak only played 19 games last season, had a 9.05 save percentage, So a down year for Halak as he heads towards the twilight of his career if he's not already there Uh, so last season Thatcher Demko like easily won the job from Holpe he you know overall had a 915 save percentage in 35 games but like he had that amazing stretch in the middle of the season before all the COVID postponements and things it's probably like slowed him down a little bit Uh, so now I think going into next year it's obvious that Demko is the starter, maybe even a volume starter based on how many games Halak got last year, which wasn't as many as he was used to seeing in Boston in the previous years. I'm starting to wonder if, like, we're in a situation where Demko might be, like trending towards a high volume goalie like maybe Ala hellebuck or vasilevsky and we've ranked like in our patron rankings where every single day we're ranking a new player for fantasy for next year so far vasilevsky hellebuck lenner and darcy kemper have been ranked kemper obviously after that colorado trade uh so i wonder if like it's time to consider demko as maybe the next goalie or do you think there's still like a few goalies in between
0: demko sure seems in line to become one of these workhorse goalies in the NHL. He had a great run last year when he was given the ball, totally ran with it, and I think he's going to get that chance again this season. But if he struggles, you've got Yarrow Halak there to help stabilize the situation. You mentioned uh Vasilevsky, Hallebuck, Leonard, and Kemper. I think it's a far drop. I think wherever you talk about UC Saros, that's where you talk about Thatcher Demko. Uh, You know, I don't have my Schmorgolis board list all set. And Demko is somebody who could be a high volume and give you some good rates. But man, I'm worried about Vancouver next season. Though Demko survived, a pretty awful defensive team in front of him last year. So you'd hope the same could be true of him this year. But it was a still a short stretch that he's shown us that he can have some really great numbers. And I'd still be nervous. So whether that, you know, if I'm trying to rank, I I don't have my whole goalie list in front of me, Elon. But if I'm trying to rank him, I'm looking at how many red flags there are for him. Team defense is a red flag. Small track record is a red flag. Yaro Halak is not so much of a red flag. I think he's there to like I said, stabilize and support and not necessarily steal a job from, but I would be anxious about reaching too high to make Demco my number one goalie. The upside is huge, But it's not someone I'd really want to bank heavily on the way I'd be ready to bank on someone like Vasilevsky, Hellebuck, and Lehner.
1: Yeah, well, I think the thing is like with Hellebuck, right? He's like made us maybe a little bit too used to the fact that a goalie on a team with weak defense is able to still be amazing if they get the volume. So we'll have to see if like Demko can approach what Hellebuck has done. So we'll have to see. This will be an interesting year for him.
0: You know, I might even go... I'm curious to... You know, you're you're getting me thinking of what other goalies go between, say, Lehner or Kemper. Kemper, I don't think necessarily is uh he's not in that tier. Maybe he goes next, but he's not in that tier of Vasilevsky and Hellebuck and laner I don't
1: care, okay, like I know we're gonna cover Colorado on the next episode, but like, is there a reason why like kemper has been great forever and now he's going into a situation yeah. where Grubauer was like one of the most valuable goalies in fantasy. I just wonder
0: if he shares time with the healthy François.
1: Yeah, I guess it's possible.
0: Anyway, so sorry. So
1: you were saying like you're thinking of goalies in between those guys oh, yeah. and uh
0: And I know you won't agree with this, but in terms of workhorses, there aren't a lot out there. But where would you go between Carter Hart on a team that seems pretty good next year in Philadelphia and Thatcher Demko?
1: I'd go Demko for sure, not even thinking twice after we've seen uh, Carter Hart have his struggles last year. And also we'll get to Philadelphia. Yeah, Philly. but what
0: about Carter Hart having done so well the year before? Yeah,
1: but also like, I don't know. So need... is, this,
0: is this recency bias?
1: I guess so, yeah. I mean, I just think that Demko is the one to me that like jumps out as like the more... Uh obvious option, yeah. but uh, goalies are hard to predict.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean Carter Hart had his demco moment, but Demco has had his Demco moment since then.
1: Yeah. Also, okay. So next episode is going to be the Metro and we're going to talk about Philly and we're going to talk about how they've brought in Rasmus Ristolainen and like Keith Yandel. Like, I don't know necessarily if this team is like a lot better, but we'll talk about them in the next episode. So let's focus still on Vancouver. Actually, I think we're done with Vancouver. So we've got a few more Pacific division teams to go. Uh, so we'll be back at you with them in just a sec. You're listening to Keeping Carlson. Okay, and we're back and let's just go to another Canadian team that has definitely made a few changes. I'm talking about the Calgary Flames. I guess one of the biggest changes is that they lost Mark Giordano to Seattle in expansion, which I guess isn't as big a change as it would have been like a year or two ago, because last year Giordano lost that top power play job, you know, by the, well, actually right at the start of the year, then he got it back for a little bit, but then lost it again. So Giordano already was seeming to be on his way out. But I guess either way, now he's for sure gone. Who's the D to target on Calgary? Like, is this a, just like an Islanders situation where the answer is like none of the above? Or like, I think... Yes. We, oh, okay. <laughs>
0: well, i <I'll Yes>. still... <laughs> that wasn't even in, you know, you have, we have our show notes where you prep the questions you're going to ask me and I prep my answers for them. That wasn't even one of your questions there. But to me, I'd already made that Islanders connection too. It, it seems like Nick Letty or the equivalent of might still be your best option. But please run them down for us and let us know who's in the mix
1: <laughs> it's just the kind of thing where like when Giordano had like a 60 plus point season just a couple years ago as the top power play quarterback on this team it makes you think that this could be a team that can produce someone really valuable but maybe the answer is that it won't be anyone but yeah here are some options Rasmus Anderson had 21 points in 56 games last year for a 31 point pace he started the year on the top power play but he really fell off at the end after losing that job only 7 points in his final 28 games uh, then you have Noah Hand- Anna Finn. Who's been there like forever at this point? Has never really done anything though. He did get on the top power play when the new coach came in. Sutter and Hannifin ended the year with only 15 points in 47 games, but 10 points in his final 21 games was closer to a 40 point pace, which is not so bad, I guess. His OEL numbers. Uh, he actually had his season ended prematurely at the end of April. He had a shoulder surgery, but he's expected to be fine for next year. Then, of course, there's Yusuf Alamaki who was the big hype guy going into last year. that ended up being a disappointment, only 11 points in 49 games. But he's only 22 years old, so I'm sure there's going to be some more hype next year than maybe next year will be the season where Valimac is finally able to take charge get big minutes and start becoming an offensive producer
0: okay so you want to know who who of these if anyone is worth targeting right I'll start with Hannafin who seems very much like a Daryl Sutter type guy he's not a super risky player he's a pretty steady hand and I think that's what Daryl Sutter appreciates and will happily forward and reward with opportunity but I think if anyone else gets a shot it should be Yusuf Alamaki because Rasmus Anderson had lots of time and space to make noise Q being the top unit last year and didn't so that should open the door to someone with more upside I think Hannafin is a conservative choice he's someone else he doesn't necessarily have the huge upside uh, Anderson still might be a decent option I think he has even lower upside than Hannafin though But Valimaki is the one that I'm excited for, and I want to see get the opportunity. But like we said at the top of this portion, I'm not sure I'm targeting any of these Calgary Flames blue liners in the first chunk of my draft, if at all. I think I'd lean taking a late swing on Valimaki before I even go for Hannifin or Anderson. Barring, of course, any new information from training camp about them for sure quarterbacking the top unit or it seeming really good, I just don't know if I want their top co- their top power play quarterback if it's not Yusuf Alamaki, because it feels like Hennepin and Anderson just have low ceilings.
1: Yeah, which is too bad. Uh, Anderson was looking like a really smart pick at the start of last season. and It kind of all fell apart. And then, of course, the big acquisition for the Flames in free agency was Blake Coleman. They uh, locked him in for a six-year deal, almost $5 million per year. So they saw Blake Coleman's 31 points in 55 games for Tampa last year, which was a 46-point pace. Uh, they were like, we want this guy. Uh, obviously Coleman is also great for your hits like he had 109 hits last year in in only 55 games 122 shots or you know two hits two shots per game I'm looking at the lines trying to figure like where Coleman slots in. I feel like he's probably a bottom sixer but tell me if I'm wrong like like you know the classic Calgary line combinations since forever have been like you know like Goudreau Monahan, and Lindholm and then like Kachuk with Backlund and Manjapani though I know last year Monaghan really struggled and then Lindholm took over as center so maybe we can get to like a situation where we're having Goudreau with Kachuk and Lindholm and then maybe Manjapani with Coleman and Backlund so like maybe like Coleman gets into the you know uh, top six by being centered by uh, Lindholm I don't even know I- I'm throwing out different options here what do you think like what's the upside for this guy it was like blake coleman like he had that really good stretch on new jersey before he got traded to tampa at the t- trade deadline a couple years ago where he was just going nuts uh then on tampa he's become more of a depth player and like a solid enough contributor though he was usually in free agency i'll admit in my uh, cupful division so obviously not someone you needed to have on your roster where do you think he'll land next year when he's on calgary is he gonna be someone that's gonna be in free agency most of the year or rostered most of the year
0: as you're trying to project the Flames' top six, I think I just want to name first before talking about Coleman that I, I still wonder if there's unfinished business this offseason with the Flames and, say, Monahan or Gaudreau. Remember at the end of last season and at the end of the one before it, these guys are as good as gone, or at least one of them needs to go. Uh, if you want to know my crazy guess, where I know nothing, but my wild guess is that there's a deal for Sean Monahan to go to Ottawa, but there's something dollar-wise Holding it back. It's a, it's a very wild guess, just based on the fact that Monahan played junior in Ottawa. Um, but I wanted to at least shoot my shot because back on our last episode, my my real thought was that Tyson Barry was going to end up quarterbacking the top unit again, that he would resign with Edmonton, but just wasn't out there at all. Like I, I I looked for rumors before we went on, and I didn't see any, and then I was really disappointed that I didn't call my shot then. So I'm I'm just gonna put that out there now. It probably will amount to nothing Uh, but going back to Blake Coleman let's say everything stays the same you mentioned that great run in New Jersey Elon and yeah I remember it too it was crazy or at least it felt that way I went back to his game logs and yeah he had a good two three weeks and that was it and then he like went quiet and then had another good week or two but it wasn't the most, it wasn't as great as I remembered it being. Uh, I think we got all, you know, really excited for him and what he could do. And then maybe just considered him being sent to Tampa as that opportunity being cut off to continue doing it. But really, even with that run, he sure looked to me still like a 45-point guy. And so for Blake Coleman, I'm not expecting more than mid-six production for him, regardless of whether he plays on the second line or the third line. He seems to me like a guy who's going to continue you know, a couple shots a night, couple hits a night. Likely stay somewhere between 50, forty and fifty points. Coleman sure seems like he's in line to get more minutes in Calgary than he did in Tampa, so that'll work in his favor. Remember, he was seeing seventeen minutes a night in New Jersey, and then lost ninety seconds a night in a bunch of his role uh, when he moved to Tampa to be more of a complimentary player. So, I think he's going to be closer to his Devils' role in Calgary than than where he's been with uh, with the Lightning, which is. Positive, right? That's a little more opportunity to put up points, definitely more opportunity to put up peripherals, but I'm not climbing over myself to get him because of what he did for a few weeks in New Jersey a couple years ago.
1: Yeah, to be fair, like during that stretch in New Jersey, it wasn't only the points he was putting up. Like if you look at the game logs just on the, the shots on goal column, he was having like five, five, seven, like three, six, three. I'm just going through it now. Like there was like a yeah. solid stretch of just like eight, there's like, five, five. I'm seeing so many high shots per game. And then he went to Tampa, went down to like two shots per game. game. so that's what i would be looking for and i'm not saying it's a guarantee but like that's what you're hoping to get i think you should grab if you're in a multi-category league i would grab blake coleman like late in your draft if he's falling uh i don't know like what the hype is for him if he's gonna fall or not i guess we'll have to see when projections come out but he's someone i definitely would want to take a swing on at the end just for the hope that he gets put in a situation where he's once again like a trigger man on his line and taking a lot of shots because then obviously that could lead to goals and just helps you in shots on goal but it's very possible that calgary saw coleman in his role on tampa and tampa just won two cups so they're like we want him to do the exact same thing now on our team which doesn't make him any more valuable in fantasy just hopefully calgary hopes that makes them more of a cup contender though obviously tampa also had uh things going on in their top two lines to make having coleman on the third line so valuable so Calgary still got to figure that out like you say brian maybe them trading sean monahan to ottawa will be the answer uh okay so let's see what else calgary did here they acquired dan vladar uh, who was the goalie on Boston that we thought would maybe be in a tandem with Swayman before Boston ended up uh, signing Linus Allmark. So, Vladar, actually, I was thinking, like, this is probably nothing, but I saw a quote from the GM uh, Brad Treleving. Uh, he was asked if Vladar will be the Flames' backup. and He said, time will tell, but we think he's ready to take that step. And you look, there's not, like, too many amazing options right now. I know they have this guy Wolf in their, you know, prospect system that maybe one day, but as of now, we might be seeing Dan Vladar as the backup for Jacob Markstrom, though we might also just see jacob markstrom play so many games this is pretty much fantasy relevant what else and then i guess they acquired nikita zadarov who is good for hits and uh, i think that's it for calgary
0: Okay, so we were trying to place goalies before, and now that you've mentioned Markstrom, and you're right, by the way, Dan Vladar sure seems to be the de facto number two in the Calgary system. They have Dustin Wolf, who was still playing junior. You've got Tyler Parsons, who uh, I don't know if they're going to arbitration with, but he's not under contract. He's an RFA and played in the ECHL last year. And then Adam Werner played in the AHL and the Swedish Elite League last season with uh, mixed results, I guess I'd say. Um, None of those guys even have the limited... NHL experience that Vladar has. So he seems like a good bet to be the backup. But like you said, I would bet Markstrom gets a chance to be a workhorse. And to me, that's enough reason for me to pick him before Mike Smith. Are we on the same page there?
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, Markstrom was so awesome at the start of last year, then really fell off. And like Calgary... Might be one of these teams that kind of stinks. Like I don't know. Like we'll see how they look. Last year they weren't like they. It was really tough having Markstrom for that stretch last year. Uh, So I don't know. I could see Edmonton still ranking higher in the standings than Calgary. Yeah, but I agree. uh, But Markstrom's a safer bet. Markstrom's a safer bet for like I think games and not like totally falling apart.
0: Yeah, I agree. Like if I had both on the draft board and I needed to draft a goalie, even though I expect Edmonton to win more games than Calgary, I would still go Markstrom.
1: Yeah, but maybe we're not too far off. Like, I think I would have Smith on my watch list by the time I'm picking Markstrom. Well, maybe you would still, like, yeah. not even have him on your radar. No,
0: that's fair. That's fair. I I, I think they're in a- in similar neighborhoods.
1: Yeah. Okay, so next up, let's go to Vegas. So we already talked about one of their big moves in our last episode together, where uh, they traded Cody Glass for Nolan Patrick, so we don't need to revisit that. Uh, I guess the biggest change they've made is they traded Marc-Andre Fleury to Chicago for the huge return of Mikhail Hakkarainen. Uh, So obviously this was just a dump. They wanted to get rid of Fleury's contract and instead they signed Laurent Brossois to be the new backup. They signed him to a a two-year 2.35 around like... Per year contract. So, Brian, uh, as soon as that happened, the patrons went and ranked Robin Leonard as the third most viable goalie to own in fantasy right now, uh, just after Vasilevsky and Hellebuck. Do you concur that at this point, with Flurry out of the picture, Leonard should be the third goalie taken off the board? Because actually, when you look, last year was kind of a down year for him. He only had a 9.13 save percentage, only played 19 games, though. So it's a very small sample size. He'd been above like 9.20 in his previous two seasons with the Islanders and Chicago and Vegas. Uh, but, you know, when you have a down year and it's 9.13, save percentage that's actually pretty good so yeah I'm curious to know do you concur with the patrons Lehner as the third goalie at this point
0: absolutely I concur I might even have Lehner as the second goalie behind Vasilevsky I, I think he's at least on even footing with Halabuk. I mean I've been calling Lehner arguably the best goalie in the league over the last few years and I think the only thing Stopping me from saying he's arguably the best goalie in the league at this point is that Vasilevsky has risen so far and above beyond the pack. So now I'll say that Robin Lehner is arguably the second best goalie in the NHL, and he's on a great team with great defense, with only Laurent Broissois as a backup. So I think uh, Lehner makes sense as a legit second or third goalie off the board in fantasy. I wouldn't let him go past being the third goalie off the board.
1: Yeah, and hey, having Laurent Brossois as your backup has worked out pretty well for Hellebuck in terms of his success, so we'll see how it goes for Lenner. Uh So what then Vegas, they made, to me, some questionable moves. So they re-signed Alec Martinez. That's not questionable to me. He's been great for them. So they locked him in for three years, 5.25 mil. Maybe it's a bit high, but that's what you have to spend to get him. He's 34 years old, so we'll have to see if he can hold up. But last year he had 32 points in 53 games for a 50-point pace. That was a career year for him, plus over three blocks per game. So in fantasy, he was amazing. Uh, I guess I'll ask, like, was Martinez martinez's production last year that 50 point pace do you think that was sustainable like even if you say no and he's only like a 40 point defenseman he's probably still really valuable in fantasy because of those blocks but just in general like when you take a look at what martinez did last year do you think that's something he could repeat
0: I don't know, Elon. He's 34 years old, and he just played on a broken foot through the playoffs. That can't be good, right? One of those things isn't good. Two of those things together sure seems very not good. Of course, I have been on record as a Martinez doubter. You and I had that side bet last season that he'd be, uh we set the over-under at a 40-point pace, which was more than his career high, I took the under, you took the over, and you won. And what I didn't see coming for the amazing season Martinez had last year was he saw a minute more of ice time per night. And he had nine power play points in 53 games, pacing for 14 power play points, which would have been the second highest total of Martinez's career and the highest since 2016-17. Uh, so those factors added to Martinez doubling his mid-20s season-long point paces from the few years prior to this one. So you're asking if he can do it again, like just blow all his previous point totals out of the water again, I don't see him putting up that same power play point pace. And I hope, though, he can still keep that extra time on ice that he had. But I think that's going to be up to his ankle or foot, whatever was broken, and his age. So I, I think if I were to make another side bet with you this year, I'd set the over-under at 45 points, and I'd still take the under-under. Would you uh, would you want to want to do a Martinez bet part two with those numbers? I don't
1: think so. I think forty five sounds about right. I think that that's like basically a coin flip at this point. So I'm not as confident as I was Darn. on the over forty last year. So okay, they sign Martinez. That's good. I I want to look at, though, what they did, because they, like, they, you know, they dumped Fleury, right? They, he had a $7 million contract for next year. They dump him. Uh, and so I'm thinking, OK, yeah, like Flurry we just won the Vesna So it's kind of an odd thing to do. But they have Leonard. And now what are they going to do with this extra $7 million of cap space? Because we know that Vegas spends to the cap. And one thing they did was they spent five of that $7 million to acquire Evgeny Dadanov from the Ottawa Senators uh, for Nick Holden and a 2022 third uh, round pick. I don't know, Brian. Like so, Dadanov had a really down year last year, only twenty points in fifty-five games for a thirty-point pace. The previous year, he had a fifty-seven-point pace with Florida. Uh, so. I mean, I don't know. I know, Brian, you've actually been a fan of Dadunov. I remember like, midway through the season, we made an over-under bet where you thought that I was <laughs> going to bounce back from the yeah. bad season he was having. Obviously, that didn't happen. Which version of Dadunov are you now expecting next season? Like, The thing is, is there even room for him in the top six? It seems like they have a pretty uh, slotted-in top six already, but why would you spend $5 million on a bottom sixer? So I don't really get what they're doing.
0: Well, he was still getting so much opportunity in Ottawa, which was the reason I still stood behind him and thinking he's got to be able to make something of this, And he didn't. And in uh, some recent some interviews, Dadanov mentioned that, you know, he's playing away from his kids and his wife was pregnant and he couldn't see he wasn't seeing them. And uh, that seemed to take a toll, especially, you know, with all the losing to probably didn't help like I'm away from that for this it was the same thing that Derek Stepan was probably thinking. So I believe that that impacted him. Um, but like you said, we can't just expect him to be better now that he's out of that situation. Uh, by out of that situation, I mean, you know, there's fewer travel restrictions in place and he's maybe closer to... Anyway, I'm not going to get too deep into the personal situation because the deployment situation for dadnov just doesn't seem great. There doesn't seem to be a ton of opportunity for him to wiggle into the top six. Because to do that, he'd need to wiggle past one of Marsha So or Riley Smith... And I don't know how replaceable those guys are. You know, the, the Carlson Marcelo Smith unit is such a unit and it's hard to imagine one of them getting bumped down for Dadanov. But we know there will at least still be a spot in the top nine for Dadanov with Nolan Patrick and Matthias Janmark now that we know Alex Tuck is going to be out for a while, at least till around February was the last I read because of his shoulder surgery. Alex Tuck put up a 50 point pace last year. I think that would be about as much damage as Dadanov could hope to do from the third line. But maybe I'd put him closer to 40 points. I I don't think Dadanov is draftable is the bottom line here, which is too bad because I think he really would have value if he was playing in a healthy top six situation. But that's just not seeming to be in the cards in Vegas.
1: Yeah. So we'll see if this works out for Vegas. Hey, there's nothing wrong with having depth and having good third liners. Basically, what they've done is they're spending 5 million on Dadanov, and then, like you mentioned, they also uh, brought back Matthias Janmark for 2 million. That's the 7 million that they would have spent on Marc Andre Fleury. So basically, they decided to trade having Fleury as their backup and less talent in their bottom six, and instead they have Brosois as their backup, and then they have Janmark and Dadanov. So I guess we'll find out if that turned out well for them. As far as fantasy goes, obviously, good for Leonard, and yeah, I'm also not expecting much from Dadanov or Matthias Janmark for what it's worth. He had like a couple good. Games, but obviously, he's a bottom sixer as well, which could be good for the team. All right, so three teams left to go in the Pacific Division here, and there are teams that didn't do too much. Let's go next to San Jose. So we already talked about how they had traded for Aiden Hill. Uh, Since then, they bought out Martin Jones, who then uh, went and signed with Philly, and then they signed James Reimer to a two-year deal. Reimer had a 906 save percentage in 22 games last year with Carolina, so it looks like San Jose is going from Jones and Dubnik, who they had last year as their starting tandem, to Aiden Hill and James Reimer. I think that's an improvement. I don't know how much of an improvement it is. I guess it's not hard to be an improvement over what Jones and Dubnik were. Like, Martin Jones has been a below 900, say, percentage goalie for the past three seasons now. But still, got to imagine, when we're coming up with our Schmore goalies board list and putting our goalies into tiers, the Hill-Reimer tandem is going to be, I'd imagine, at the very bottom of when we're looking at goalie tandems, right? Like, I can't even imagine another goalie tandem I'd want more. Maybe Buffalo? I think Buffalo currently has, like, Aaron Dell and... Who else does Buffalo even have? We'll we'll get to that when we get to the Buffalo discussion. But uh, yeah, this isn't great for San Jose, but I think it is an improvement. So what do you do? Do you have a preference, by the way? Aiden Hill or James Reimer, who you draft first?
0: First, let me fill in the blank. They have Craig Anderson over (laughs) in Buffalo to go with Aaron Dell. So yeah, I'd say that's probably the least appealing tandem. Although, can you name the Arizona goalies?
1: Um...
0: Because Hill, Ranta, and Kemper are all elsewhere.
1: Um.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they have Carter Hutton. Oh, no. And Joseph Koronash.
1: Right, they traded uh, Hill for Koronash. Right. or I think it's pronounced Kajanash. I think both ours are
0: Okay, both ours are In any case, oh, boy. Uh, th- th- those are two Buffalo and Arizona, Arizona going to get in, into a huge tank war this season for Shane Wright. And I think uh, the San Jose tandem isn't quite as bad as those. But yeah, it's down there. And San Jose has not been a particularly good defensive team either. The Sharks ranked 28th in team defense last season, ahead of only the Kings, the Chicago, and the Canucks. And I'm not sure the Sharks have gotten any better on the back end, though they did add Cogliano and Benino, who might be helpful the same way that Warren Fogel might be helpful in Edmonton, although Cogliano is like proven, right? He's like the third line shutdown center that every team on the league would give their left arm for, or as much as San Jose did anyway. Uh, so yeah, I'm not jumping on either Aiden Hill or James Rimer. Rimer, I guess, could if I were to pick one, Eileen Reimer, who I still think could offer more upside than Martin Jones did last year, but that's not saying a whole lot. That's just if you're looking for a deep or very late goalie. Elon, by the way, do you remember that this is not Reimer's first go-round in San Jose?
1: Uh, right. They got him at the trade deadline one year.
0: Yeah, from Toronto. And he went 6-2 and two with a 9.38 save percentage. Uh, yeah. But he only played one appearance in those playoffs because Martin Jones had a 923 playoff save percentage that brought the Sharks within two games of winning the Stanley Cup. They lost in six to Pittsburgh. But imagine, and that was still one year before Martin Jones got extended to the contract that was just bought out. So those were obviously much happier times for the Sharks about six years ago now. Uh, but it's funny to think, uh, it's been a long time and I totally forgot that Reimer was a Shark until. They signed him just now
1: perfect so i guess they're hoping he'll recapture that uh, magic that he had back then and once again they can go far in the playoffs i guess they'll need uh carlson and burns to also remember how <laughs> they used to be good six years ago as well
0: they'll need a lot of recaptured
1: magic yeah uh, okay so let's go to la now so their big signing isn't probably especially fantasy relevant but obviously really relevant for the team they spent big on phil deno six years 5.5 mil per year uh Deneau had 24 points in 53 games last year which is only a 37 point pace previously he'd been around 55 point pace guy with the Habs but of course you're not bringing in Phil Deneau to get you a ton of points he's like known as being this awesome like two way centerman and LA now has this like glut like they have a lot of C to choose from I don't think this is a problem right because obviously most people who play center know how to play wing but they've got like Kopitar Villardi, uh, Turcotte, Byfield like I don't think I did this in the right order but uh, Leah Anderson. so they've got like a bunch of players who can play C but I'd imagine they're bringing Phil Deneau in to either be the second line or third line center and this is like a piece that LA's hoping when all their Young players are ready, you know, he's going to be a big part of a hopeful long playoff run. But as far as fantasy goes, are you with me that there's probably not much reason to draft Phil Deneau in your leagues next year?
0: Yeah, I'm not getting excited by drafting Phil Deneau. I'm the same level of excited as I would have been if he had stayed in Montreal. I think Deneau to the Kings gives LA some room for their center, their glut. Of prospects at center to get their feet wet on the wings that's my best guess about how this all starts but we'll find out more soon because Ben Burnett short shifts Ben is talking to Lisa Dillman uh, our favorite LA Kings beat writer on Wednesday in what will be uh, the next release of 32 beats so stay tuned to hear more from Ben and Lisa about what you can expect from Phil to know uh, but I think the bottom line or my prediction is that this doesn't do much for his fantasy values being brought to come in and do the same thing defensively that that he was doing in montreal especially with kopitar aging but i don't expect Dino to, to step into kopitar's offensive role just try and help the defensive role as kopitar gets another year older so yeah no value there
1: yeah, I guess it might be relevant in terms of because we talked about Victor Arvidsson going to LA before and he like maybe gets centered by it. I don't know if that's good or bad. But anyways the other big thing LA did is they signed Alex Edler to a one year $3.5 million deal. So hopefully, you know, he's like basically done with offense. Last year I didn't even realize how little he produced. He had no goals and 8 assists in 52 games with the Canucks last year. But he had his typical like 80 hits, 118 blocks in this 52 games, 99 shots. So Edler, good for your peripherals hopefully he'll be good for like a Cal Peterson to have his first potential season being the actual starter on this team and uh, yeah but as far as LA, LA like focused on D I guess and not offensive production in this offseason then we finish off in Anaheim where they literally did nothing all they did that I noticed is they they re-signed Ryan Getzlaff to a one-year 4.5 million dollar contract which like kind of surprises me like uh, Getzlaff only had 17 points in 48 games last season that's a 29 point pace was only averaging around 16 and a half minutes per game so he wasn't being used like the Ryan Getzlaff of old he's 36 years old this is like for sure Anaheim just being nice because Ryan Getzlaff has been like such a staple of their team for so long and they have the cap space anyways like I can't imagine that Getzlaff was going to be getting close to this on any other team
0: it is really surprising that Ryan Getzlaff got this for I don't know how four and a half million happened evolving wild projected him at half that much on a one year deal, which would have not maybe raised an eyebrow. I-, I think this is a-, a legacy contract for Ryan Getzlaff and Anaheim to have his, you know, veteran leadership around for another season. It's also funny because I can't imagine Anaheim was bidding against anybody else. For his services or at least that much so anyway i'm happy like i hope he's happy i hope the ducks are happy and there's no change he's not going in a cap league that's a killer right nobody wants a four and a half million dollar ryan gets nobody wants a two million dollar ryan gets in a cap league
1: yeah especially with trevor zegras likely to take on a bigger role next year like i don't see gets being more than a depth guy maybe he's the new phil to know
0: anyway okay That
1: is our episode about the Pacific Division, Brian. This has been a blast going through it. Uh, You and I are actually going to stay here behind our microphones and record another show right away. But to the people who listen to this episode, thank you so much for listening. And if you want to hear us talk about the Metropolitan Division, where we're going to start in New Jersey and the Big Dougie Hamilton signing, all you have to do is make sure you're subscribed to Keeping Carlson and stay tuned for our next episode. But yeah, that's the show. Uh, We hope you liked it. Uh, we'd love for to hear your feedback so you could reach out to us on twitter at keeping carlson let us know what you think about everything we've been doing uh also we've got our patreon program keepingcarlson.com slash patron if you want to join our community we're going to be launching the keeping carlson ultimate patron fantasy league very very soon we've started announcing some rule changes to the patrons we're going to be opening up registration in i think less than two weeks so obviously if you're a patron you'll be made very aware don't worry you're not going to be able to miss it you also won't be able to miss it if you're a listener of the show because we're going to be talking about it very soon so now's the time to consider getting in with our patron community as the season is like training camp is like a month away people i don't know if you realize that so uh it's time to get serious and you could learn more about how to get serious at keepingcarlson.com slash patron but with that brian let's cue the outro music i want you to go ahead and read us the credits
0: Alright, this episode of the Cuban-Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dabra Hockey and powered by our patrons. Logo art from brandonweave.com, outro music from Pat Roach. This episode was researched with help from Dabra Hockey, Frozen Tools, Dabra Prospects, Natural Stat Trick, Evolving Hockey, Cap Friendly, Hockey Reference, Hockey Base, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, and NBC Sports Edge. Great job
1: as always, Brian, and I'm looking forward to talking to you in just a minute for an episode that will be released very soon about the Metropolitan Division.
0: Until then, remember, fantasy hockey is for everyone.